Hello everyone, this is the episode about the first part of our discussion of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which will cover the events up until chapter 8 of the novel. Our focus here will be not only in the plot, but also narrative features, historical and scientific allusions, and especially how Frankenstein can be interpreted as a novel about reading. So, let's get started. So let's start with the title then. One of the most interesting aspects of the novel is that its full name is Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus. So it has this kind of subtitle, The Modern Prometheus. And Prometheus uh, is the name of the Titan god from Greek mythology who stole the fire of knowledge. Uh, to give to mankind, and because of that, was punished by Zeus to be um, tied to a rock and to have his liver eaten every day by an eagle. So by calling um, Frankenstein the modern Prometheus, Mary Shelley is making a direct connection here between the Greek myth and this sort of modern myth that she's trying to build, the myth of the scientist who is going to steal, metaphorically, this fire of knowledge from the gods, and this fire is the fire of the creation of life, and then giving it to mankind. And, like Prometheus, um, Frankenstein is going to pay a very high price so the fact that um, Mary Shelley chose to give this kind of subtitle to Frankenstein shows that this is a novel that makes a very clear reference to another cultural work. And as we progress in our reading of the novel, we're going to see that it is filled with several references and allusions um, to literary, philosophical, and scientific works, names, authors, and uh, people of great renown that um, Mary Shelley was reading at the time and became part of uh, all the historical background uh, from which um, she was writing. We have to remember that she was writing at the time that became known in history as the Second Scientific Revolution. The first scientific revolution was the scientific revolution uh, of the time of Isaac Newton, so the scientific revolution of the 18th century, in which science was built through experimentation in, in which uh, it was understood that nature had laws. So the role of the scientist was to understand the laws of nature. So this was the first scientific revolution um, of the 18th century. Now, when we get to the 19th century and this period called the second scientific revolution, so this period um, when Mary Shelley is writing um, Frankenstein, here we have... Uh, a kind of uh, mixture between science 
and the imagination. So the scientific and the literary. So we have several scientists at this time who are also poets and poets who are also doctors. Um, and it's very interesting here that the romantic imagination, of course, the 19th century is the century of romanticism, was also very present in the works of um, several scientists and the kind of discoveries of the scientists of the time, the great discoveries of uh, these men, I mean, they were mostly men, um, was related to a kind of um, very uh, piercing and important question. And the question was, will this discovery, will this revolution, will this new law of nature that I've just uh, found out bring terror to society or bring amazement and joy to society? So this was a kind of question that um, was very much in the mind of uh, scientists and scholars and academics and also writers and poets of of the 19th century and of the, the second scientific revolution. So in this case, um, we can see how Frankenstein is a kind of um, heir to all this uh, movement that was happening at the time that Mary Shelley was writing the novel. And as I said, there is uh, an amount, a great amount of allusions in the novel from the philosophical, um, for example, Mary Shelley's own um, parents, William Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft. So Mary, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft considered one of the first feminists and a writer uh, and thinker who talked a lot about the role of education in the development of uh, morals. And also Godwin, who was a great critic of um, aristocratic morals. Um, on the other hand, we also have um, John Locke, who helped establish and devise the concept of the tabula rasa, of the blank slate, um, which basically said that human beings were born as a white sheet of paper, and it was uh, experiences, social experiences, basically, that gave shape to who they were. And also Rousseau, who, um, through the notion of the good savage, established that human beings were born good, inherently good, and it was society that corrupted them. Apart from that, Mary Shelley was also aware of the works of uh, alchemists like um, Cornelius Agrippa and Albertus Magnus and names that were also alchemists but very close to an early kind of medicine like Paracelsus, for instance. Um, not to mention the poets of the time that she had contact with like William Wordsworth and uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, and of course, her own husband, uh, later on, Percy Shelley, and also her close friend, um, Lord Byron. Um, 
and also the other names that were perhaps central to the second scientific revolution, like uh, the chemist uh, Humphrey Davy and also um, Galvani, who experimented and made several discoveries um, regarding electricity. So all these aspects were present in the mind of Mary Shelley while she was writing Frankenstein. So the novel starts with a letter, a letter written uh, by the character Walton to his sister, Mrs. Saville, um, who is in England, reading Walton's letter and, to a certain extent, reading the whole novel. This is one of the most fascinating aspects of Frankenstein because it is a novel built through several narrative voices. So it starts first with the narrative voice of Walton in his letters. And inside Walton's letters, we're going to have the narrative of Victor Frankenstein telling his own story. Later on, when uh, Frankenstein is going to meet the monster, the monster is going to tell his story. So what happened to him after Victor had abandoned him? So then we're going to have another narrative voice. Then inside the monster story, he's going to tell also the story of the Delacys and their relationship with Safi. And then we're going to have another narrative. So it's, it's very noticeable that it is a story, um, that Frankenstein is a novel, with a story, within a story, within a story. And all these stories are being written in England by Walton's sister. So she is this kind of uh, character that is outside the novel reading everything. So to a certain extent, we as readers we are kind of, uh, we are placed in a similar position to uh, Walton's sister as she reads the letters and the novel. And a curious point is that um, the initials of, um, of the name of Walton's um, sister, uh, M.W.S., uh, which are Margaret Walton Seville, are the same initials of Mary Shelley's name, M.W.S., Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. So to a certain extent, uh, Mary Shelley could be the writer and also the ultimate reader of her own novel. Um, so then it's fascinating to see how the whole narrative is built in what we could call these concentric circles of narrative because it's one voice inside another voice inside uh, another voice. Uh, another way of interpreting this is that the, the same way that the monster is composed of uh, several body parts sewn together, mashed together, joined together, so is the novel. So the novel is a kind of a narrative metaphor for 
the creation of the monster, or the monster is a kind of an atomic metaphor for the creation of the novel, because both are composed um, of uh, several parts. Um, and here, it's also interesting that um, Walton, who is the captain of a ship, um, who is trying to find uh, a new way uh, to the North Pole, so he is a conqueror in search of glory, in search of fame, uh, but also in search of a kind of scientific discovery. And in this case, Walton is a character that mirrors Frankenstein um, in several ways. Um, Walton is um, writing these letters because uh, he believes that um, his sister is going to understand his anguish, his ambition, and uh, his search for honor. So it is when the ship um, is stuck amidst blocks of ice that uh, first Walton sees a sled carried by dogs, um, and, and which is led by a gigantic uh, creature far in the distance. And later on, he is going to um, find uh, Frankenstein, who is rescued uh, by the ship. And then it is uh, the moment that after saying who he was, and one interesting aspect is that um, Walton is going to say when finding Frankenstein that he is not a savage, that he is a European. And there are several moments in this in the novel that Mary Shelley is going to play a lot on these differences of uh, people who are recognized as others and people who are recognized as the same, which is also a central theme of the novel. The monster is the great figure of otherness in the novel. And uh, Walton, when he sees Frankenstein, He's going to uh, identify with Frankenstein in the sense that he's also a European. Um, and then it is the moment that um, Frankenstein is going to start telling his own story to Walton. Okay, so the first part of the novel has this epistolary quality. So epistolary is the adjective we give when a certain text, especially literary texts, are composed of letters. And even though Frankenstein cannot be called a complete epistolary novel, it has a kind of epistolary quality, not only because of the letters that Walton writes to his sister, but also later on the novel is going to be filled with letters, letters that Elizabeth, um, Victor's fiance, writes to him, letters that uh, uh, Victor's father writes to him. So it is a novel composed um, of letters. And um, after this first part, which is composed of letters, we move on to a kind of a more traditional narrative when uh, Frankenstein is going to start telling his own version um, of the story. Uh, but before that, it's interesting to talk about how, to a certain extent, Victor Frankenstein and Walton share a similarity because both, to a certain extent, 
have uh, what we understand as hubris. Hubris is a word from uh, Greek tragedy um, that means arrogance or overconfidence or pride and to a certain, certain extent a defiance of the gods. So it was a characteristic that uh, was present in several Greek tragedies and is also a, a characteristic um, that is part of uh, Victor's uh, personality as well as Walton's because both want to a certain extent defy gods in the sense that they want to go beyond what is understood and known in terms of science and want to build uh, their own fame and uh, their own sense of uh, discovery and honor in taming nature or uncovering the secrets of nature and even conquering um, nature. Um, so much so that when Victor finds out that uh, Walton is trying to to go on this journey to find the, the way to the, to the North Pole and he recognizes in Walton his own hubris, he uh, sort of warns um, Walton. So at the same time that he admires um, Walton for his hubris and, and boldness, but he also warns him saying that uh, Walton has a kind of madness that he himself, uh, Victor, uh, has shown before. Um, after that, then, it is the moment that he starts uh, telling his story um, and it's interesting uh, to see that he says that his story is irrevocably determined, like as if his story is a predetermined uh, book. So this shows how destiny is very important in the story, especially after the 1831 version. Um, Mary Shelley made slight changes that reinforced the role of destiny in the story. So it's interesting to see that to a certain extent, uh, even though Frankenstein is a very scientific book, it is also a kind of a pagan book because, as many critics have noted, um, it is a book with an absence of God. God, uh, I think, is is only mentioned uh, twice in the novel. So there is no God in this story. What it is, is destiny. Um, and Frankenstein says that his story is kind of determined. So uh, it, it was... He couldn't escape from this destiny. Um, and then he starts telling about his very joyous uh, childhood. He says that in his childhood, he was kind of pampered and spoiled. He tells briefly about the story about how his parents met. Um, he tells the story of Elizabeth, too. And also here, it's interesting when he talks about Elizabeth's um, childhood, the way the, that she was basically adopted by the family. Um, uh, in this shelter, in this orphanage. And uh, uh, the racial undertones here are, are very clear when he says that the other children were dark, but Elizabeth was fair. Um, and then she was pure, like, uh, like an angel. And uh, uh, also, this is a difference that is established um, in uh, the diverse versions of the novel, because in the original version, 1818, um, it is emphasized that she's like a sister to him, 
Whereas in the 1831 version, she's more talked about as a cousin. So uh, we have these incestuous overtones um, in the story. Um, and as um, Frankenstein uh, evolves into um, his teenage years, um, he talks about how curious he was in, uh, about uh, natural events and about natural philosophy. So this this idea of natural philosophy would be what today we call the disciplines of um, biology and chemistry. Um, and then there is uh, the very important episode when uh, after a storm, I mean, during a storm, he sees a bolt of lightning uh, destroying a tree. And the next day he sees that the tree was torn into pieces and he's fascinated by that, by the power of nature. Uh, and then um, he finds out about galvanism and about the different theories of electricity. Um, and it is then that he starts reading works by the alchemists, alchemists like Agrippa and Albertus Magnus and even Paracelsus. Um, and, and the alchemists were between the fields of magic and medicine. You know, there are famous, uh, there are famous experiments um, from alchemy, like uh, finding out um, the elixir of life, uh, you know, to provide eternal life and immortality. And of course, the search for the, for the philosopher's stone. Uh, but uh, the, the, the studies of alchemists fascinate Frankenstein and this fascination will continue when he goes to university, when he goes to the University of Ingolstadt and there he finds a Professor Waldman and Professor Waldman is a kind of professor that uh, admires the alchemists and uh, he sort of plants this seed in uh, Frankenstein's mind about the possibility uh, of trying to uncover the mysteries of nature, not with um, conventional science, but breaking the rules, the established rules, not only of science, but also of morality. And this is going to be very important when, um, when he makes the monster. So it's interesting to see that um, as many authors have said, um, Frankenstein, the novel, might be about the creation of a monster, but it is also about the creation of a human, a monstrous human, in this case, um, Victor Frankenstein. And um, as I said before, he is going to take all these theories and is going to join them together uh, and with this, he's going to also find different parts of bodies. He's going to desecrate cemeteries and graveyards in order to take parts of bodies to create the monster. Uh, it's interesting to see that it is never mentioned in the novel. I mean, how he gets to the so-called principle of life, uh, which is something um, that uh, alchemists also sought after. But he has a kind of an eureka moment after all his research and he finds out the principle of life. And it is with this discovery that he goes on then and uh, creates the monster.
then we get to the famous chapter 5, which is a central chapter of the novel. It is the chapter uh, when Frankenstein creates the monster. It was probably um, the first chapter Mary Shelley wrote and also the chapter that she orig originally wrote in Geneva when in the competition, the horror story competition uh, with By Byron Shelley, Claire and, and Dr. Polidori. And the interesting thing is that many people read and investigate uh, this chapter, especially the first paragraphs of this chapter over and over in search of the explanation that is given um, not only for the creation of, of the monster, but also the manners and the details which might be given, uh, scientific details that might explain the so-called principle of life, I mean, how the monster was created. But uh, very few details are given. Uh, the only sentence that specify the detail of the creation of the monster is, and I quote, I collected the instruments of life around me that I might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet, end of quote. So notice here that he gives no explanation about like where he put the bodies, about it, the machinery involved in it or how he sewn the parts of the bodies together, um, and, and things like that, right? So uh, the only um, word here that gives a kind of hint about the procedure is the spark, the spark of being, which might be read metaphorically, but also might be read literally considering spark is a word connected to electricity. And here we see how important uh, galvanism was it was um, in the mind of Mary Shelley when uh, when she wrote the story. But the interesting thing is, before the creation of the monster, um, Frankenstein said very clearly and more than once how proud he would be when the monster was created. He said, and I quote, a new species would bless me as its creator. End of quote. So he, it was as if he was believing he was going to be this new god uh, for this supposedly new species. And this new species would be forever thankful to him for uh, creating uh, them. But the point is that when the monster is created, Frankenstein sees uh, how abominable to his mind the monster is, and he rejects it. Um, of course, you know, people joke that the whole problem is that the monster is ugly. If the monster was good looking, uh, Frankenstein wouldn't have rejected uh, him or it, the, the monster in this case. But um, it's fascinating to see how the problem is not that the monster is ugly, but the problem is how irresponsible Frankenstein is with uh, his creation because he was completely obsessed with uh, his experiment with creating uh, this new species. 
uh, he mentions uh, many times how he didn't eat, he didn't sleep, especially he didn't see anybody, he didn't have company, even his uh, best friend Clerval was sent away. Uh, but then after the creation, he becomes extremely disappointed. And in his disappointment, he rejects uh, his creation. So it's as if a parent is abandoning um, its child, its, its offspring. And in this case, uh, it shows how irresponsible uh, Frankenstein is as a parent. Uh, of course, I mean, people that read the novel through a, a feminist viewpoint uh, read this sometimes as a kind of postpartum uh, depression, and this is a possible interpretation. But another way of seeing is that Frankenstein here is behaving in a way that the monster later on um, will never behave. Uh, the monster is a very sympathetic character and he shows strong signs of empathy by caring for other people. And uh, Frankenstein is completely careless um, in his behavior, not only in this moment, but in several other uh, moments uh, in the novel. So then he abandons the monster and the monster um, escapes, disappears. Uh, and months pass by because Frankenstein gets very ill with a fever. Um, Clerval uh, takes care of him. And it is only when he is recovered after several months, he receives a letter from his father saying that uh, his young brother, who was a child called William, uh, was found dead. And uh, he goes back uh, to his hometown and uh, on the way there there is a very gothic scene um, in which there is a storm and uh, through a bolt of lightning he sees uh, the shape of the monster very briefly and uh, through that he understands that probably the monster was involved in the killing of, of William, a young a girl maid, Justine, is accused of, of the murder because uh, she's found with a small portrait that belonged to, to the child. And later on, she confesses. She's so consumed by the, all the injustice that she's suffering and she wants to end it. And she confesses. But Frankenstein knows that uh, she is innocent and uh, she receives the death sentence. So she is killed uh, well, because of this uh, accusation, because she's charged with murder. But deep down, Frankenstein knows that he is the responsible for the, the murdering of his brother and for the unjust punishment of Justine, because he was the one that created the monster and these are going to be the first on a list of killings um, that are going to be attributed both to the monster and to Frankenstein.
Okay, this is the end of our discussion of part one of Frankenstein. Next week, we are going to start discussing the novel from chapter nine onwards. And we're going to see finally the moment when Frankenstein is confronted by the monster. And the monster will tell the things that happened to him after he was abandoned. See you next week.